All right, here we go. That was only one false start this week. I mean, it was better than it could have been. We could have been like an hour in, and then he went, oh, hey, I'm not recording. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to say that I've never made that mistake. I make the mistake on my camera all the time. I'll be like trying to shoot a video, and I'll switch it over to video, and I'll watch something really cool happen, and I'll press the button, and it'll like start recording. I'm like, damn it. I was thinking to streamline my editing process a bit, it would be nice to just have the timestamps of like when we change topics over so I can edit one complete block of the podcast and then have it set aside for when I want to slot it into the finished product. And I'm thinking about like all the work this is going to be, like it's going to be an extra step while recording in Audacity. I can add a little note or whatever. Mm-hmm. But speedrunners have solved this problem. They've made software that does this automatically. Well, I mean, I think podcasters have it, too. I think that they have basically the same technology that uh, speedrunners use. Sure, but I'm not familiar at all with podcasting. <laughs> what do you know about podcasting? This is only our, what, eighth episode? Absolutely nothing. No, this is a very common thread in my life where I'll, have, I'll, I'll go to solve some, like, somewhat complicated problem and spend some time, like, working through the steps of what I'm going to have to do until I just have this epiphany, like, oh, somebody has already solved this. All I have to do is to spend two seconds Googling the solution. Let's see. I'm actually Googling podcasting timestamp app. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, this might not be as easy as it looks. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> see? Love it. <laughs> this is the problem with consuming content on the internet. And you're like, oh, that looks super easy. I can do that. No, yeah. probably not. <laughs> I, I do know just from listening to people who do sort of on-the-fly podcasts and sometimes leave a lot of the uh, warts in, it, in the process, I've, I've heard them write down timestamps and stuff. Like, a lot of times I think they just use, like, a marker board or something. So when somebody drops, like, an F-bomb, if they're an edited podcast, they go, okay, got to write that time down. <laughs> so that's what you need is you need a, a McLean drops an F-bomb <laughs> timestamp. We should just get a soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching clips of... Joe Rogan's podcast, which I enjoy from time to time. And he had, I don't know the name of the guest. I don't actually know comedians that well, but he had a guest on 90% of his dialogue was just ums, uhs, and likes. Like This guy's probably great on stage doing his material, but for some reason it wasn't edited in this clip. And you can just, looking at poor Joe Rogan's face, like, I should not have had this guy on my show. <laughs> no. I don't remember the guy's name or what they were discussing, but that, that comes to mind. Was it Joe Rogan's show that frickin' Elon Musk went on to where he smoked pot and apparently had a meltdown that culminated in his just being outed this week? <laughs> Did you hear about that? Bits and pieces. Because, listen, okay, okay. <laughs> Elon Musk is like a personal hero of mine. So, like, watching the the years-long slow descent into madness, I'm like, come on, man. Just, just grab the edge and scramble back up, please. I listened to a podcast. I think you listened to it. Watch, you at least watch YouTube show, The Some More News. And they have a podcast called Even More News. And I think they put it on their YouTube feed, so you may have caught it there. But they've been going on and on about this whole Elon Musk thing. I actually haven't watched it since all this went down. But every time when he was like smoking pot on on the podcast and stuff, he was like, you have so much money and so much ambition. 
why do you keep wanting to do stupid stuff with it? Just build some affordable housing or something. Just do something, like, practical. We don't need... He was talking about... Apparently, Elon Musk was talking about building some sort of hyper tube rollerblade thing to get to Dodger Stadium. And they were like, what? <laughs> that makes no sense. Oh, it's hard for me. Because, like I said, the man... Okay. <laughs> well, let's get a little bit philosophical here, okay? Okay. One of the highest virtues of mankind in the long term is settling other worlds. Getting off of Earth and getting out there somewhere established. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you have an obvious comic book supervillain like Elon Musk (laughs) spending so much time and money and energy and passion... In trying to do space exploration, which is something like no government wants to do this anymore. Nobody's doing this. And so when you, you, the few people on Earth who have made that their passion, like, I really like and respect that. But at the same time, I don't want, like, you didn't need to build a submarine and go to Thailand and get into a a Twitter cockfight (laughs) with the dive. Like, come on, man. Why can't you just go to space in your cool car? I mean, and that's the thing. Elon Musk really is, has always been a Lex Luthor without a Superman. And that's why he keeps lashing out at people. When he, like, the person, like, dissed this little mini submarine. is like, no, this isn't practical for cave diving. It may be fine for space exploration, but not for this particular thing. He's like, well, whatever, you're a pedophile. It's like, What? <laughs> Where did that come from? That's one of those news stories. Like, when I first read it, I'm like, oh, somebody's just trashing Elon Musk again. Because he's rich and he's, you know, he's a white guy and it's trendy. But no, I, I read this story. Like, he really did say that. Like, why? why? He didn't just say it one time either. He, like, doubled and tripled down. Like, he kept saying, no, this guy is from Thailand. So, obviously, he's a child molester. And he goes to this beach. He said something like, oh, this guy vacationed at this beach where everyone knows you only go for your child molester and everyone's like okay first of all what and second of all even if that was true why would you know that like this is just weird going to mars great i think he had like the submarine was part of maybe trying to do more with underwater settlement because you know we're going to run out of usable land so use you know the use the oceans and that can help us prepare for space awesome uh, electric cars in principle great idea but then he does stupid stuff like won't let his workers at the electric car factory unionize. It's like, if you're for the betterment of mankind, that includes the workers, man. <laughs> but it's pretty obvious he wants to enrich mankind for the super rich Elon Musks of the world who can afford to go live at like a condo in Mars. I think like the world needs these eccentric billionaire business types who you can't wrap your head around. They have crazy ideas and do, but like doing and saying crazy things, I think comes along with that. I think to a certain extent, I mean, Thomas Edison electrocuted an elephant just to prove he could do it. Yeah. But that elephant was a dick. Well, most elephants mm-hmm. are, let's be honest. It was going to team up with two hippos and 50 eagles to take out some poor bastard with 10,000 rats on an island. <laughs> oh, solid callback. Well, what I said in the, uh, the the aborted opening was, let's hurry up and get this over with so I can get back to Final Fantasy XV, because it has its hooks in me quite a lot. Um, you said you replayed Final Fantasy XV, right? 
Yeah, pretty recently, last month or so. And how long did it take you to replay it compared to your explorative original play? I very purposely didn't do any hunts Mm -hmm. or any side stuff. I just did the main quests and I think just a hair over 20 hours. That's good. I always worry with open world games that I'm just never going to have any reason to return to them because they're endless. And (laughs) it's nice to know that there's like a decent solid 20 hour RPG because that's like a Final Fantasy 4 now. Like that's a good replayable RPG. I like an open world game to have its checklists in manageable pieces because mm-hmm. not all of them are endless. Some of them can seem endless. There are 9,000 Korok seeds. Enjoy! You know, <laughs> there's 500 hidden packages. Right. But I played Horizon Zero Dawn. And that it wasn't endless. It's like, all right, there's there's 20 things. There's 20 things out there in the world. Mm-hmm. You'll climb the towers, you'll find the little bobbleheads, whatever they are. You buy all your weapons, and you get 40 hours. I was like, I've done everything in this game. I've, I've covered every inch. I felt really good about that. I think that a good, a good open world game is very clear about what is mainline and what is optional. And that's one of the problems I always had with Grand Theft Auto is... I feel like sometimes in Grand Theft Auto, I stumbled into the plot <laughs> without re- because you just Grand Theft Auto, I feel like just gives you like a gajillion missions. And if you're really paying attention, you kind of know which one's the main plot and which one's a side plot. But it doesn't really clearly delineate it like in a sub menu or something like that's what I like about what Breath of the Wild did and what um, Final Fantasy 15 does. Like it's like these are your side things. Here's your main thing. Which would you like to do today? If you want me to part the, the veil for a minute with Grand Theft Auto. That's by design. They do that on purpose. In fact, Vice City is the it's the Grand Theft Auto that I know most well. It's the one I've played the most. Mm-hmm. You reach a point in the, the story, such as it is, where the whole game world opens up, and then the game just silently keeps track of just how much just nonsense you get up to, how much faffing about you do. And then once you've reached a certain quota of nonsense, they throw a story mission at you. Huh. That's purposely how it's built. I'm pretty sure Grand Theft Auto V, which I played, I don't know, 30 or 40 hours of, does the same thing. See, I don't think San Andreas did that. I think San Andreas just gave you a list of missions. And I could be misremembering. It's been a long time since I played it. But San Andreas is is the only Grand Theft Auto I actually finished. And I seem to remember there being a few places where I felt like I stumbled into plot. Where I thought I was doing... I mean, anytime you do a mission, it's a mission. But, I, you know, sometimes there'd be side missions and sometimes there'd be plot missions and I, I thought I was just doing something just screwing around and then suddenly Sam Jackson would show up and start screaming at me and I'd be like oh god I'm in the plot again how did that happen <laughs> but Final Fantasy 15 doesn't do that it very clearly has so I think there actually is a subheading on your screen for side missions I haven't played it in a couple of days so I'm not remembering exactly how the menus are set up but yeah it's pretty clear and then you do reach a point in 15 where there's like a line in the sand, and then once you step over it, there's no more open world. You're done with the open world now. Can't you get back to it? Is it just post-game, or is it right at the end of the game where you get back to the open world? You haven't completed the game, so I'll say this. Mm-hmm. There's no more story content in the open world. Okay, that makes sense. It's not necessarily post-game, but it's also kind of disingenuous to say that it's not necessarily post-game. But there's no more story. that That's behind you. Gotcha. They did add some more open world stuff in 
since the first time I played it, which is just hilarious to me because you can tell someone at Square Enix is looking at all the open world games, looking at the Ubisoft games and stuff and being like, why don't we make that? Why isn't our game that? We need to make our game more that. I have noticed since I'm playing it for the first time on the Windows edition that there's things that are pretty clearly have been added. Like the first time I walked into, so you, you played it the first time on PS4 or whatever, and then played it, replayed it on Windows, right? That's correct. Right. So the first time I walked into the ocean side, um, you know, the nice resort little cabana town or whatever. It's not really a town. It's like the, the, the port. Um, yeah, Golden K. Yeah, the first thing I noticed was the, like, flat screen televisions that are showing off, like, pictures of Ignis. And, the, and like, a message pops up about, like, the Ignis photo contest. And I'm like, okay, this is all, like, <laughs> persistent world stuff that they've added for the, the PC version that I'm sure, I'm, like, 90% sure wasn't in there originally. Eventually, you'll go to a place called Altitia. Mm-hmm. And you get on a boat and you go over there. Mm-hmm. And when the game tells you, hey, it's time to get on your boat and go to Altitia, that's when you know the game's open world is done. There's some open world stuff to do in Altitia, but it's not connected to the stuff you've done. I mean, and I kind of got the impression that that was going to... The game kind of teases it with you, because like the very beginning of the game, they're like, go to this port, get on the boat. And you go to the port, and they're like, port's closed, go faff around, basically. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of was under the impression that, like a lot of Final Fantasy games, really you have a certain amount of faffing around and then go do the thing. You know, even all the way back in Final Fantasy VI, you can faff around for a really long time until you say, let's go to the Empire. And then you go to the Empire and get railroaded for a while. Make sure you go do the thing. You wouldn't want to not do the thing. I do like, and I know that it's just a suggestion, but I like the fact that they have levels on the missions. So I know when I'm starting to get just way over leveled, like right now I'm pretty way over leveled. So I'm going to go do plot for a little while. <laughs> because I'm like twice as many levels as for the next suggested plot point. Have you done any fishing? Oh yeah. No, I like the fishing a lot. You like the fishing. And I also, since I'm playing on the PC version, I think it just gave me the best fishing rod, or a very good fishing rod to start off with. Oh, I haven't done any fishing on the PC version, so I have no idea. <laughs> they start you off with like three fishing rods, and it's very obvious, like, here's the default starter rod, and here's one that we're giving you like the, you know, the Murasame fishing rod, or whatever the hell they called it. So you ride this boat to Altitia, and it's this, this long cutscene where you travel in the boat. And the idea is, that, like, Altitia is like a separate map. But when I played the game this time, running around when I got to Altitia, and I noticed that the more missions are opening up that I remembered, and they're all fishing missions. And I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense. It's kind of like a Venice sort of setting. But usually they put the little fishing icons on the map. So you know you can go to this spot and go fishing. And there weren't any new ones. So I didn't know where any of these fishing missions were taking place until just like on a lark, I don't know why, but I was just exploring Altitia after completing the game. I went back to my boat and knocked. It's like, all right, guys, let's go. And they hop in the boat. And now I can get in the boat and go actually sail it in the ocean. What? And this is where all these fishing spots opened up, where all these quests are. You can go deep sea fishing now? <laughs> yes, and I have no idea why. There's nothing else to do out there. There's nothing else to do. You can get in the boat and sail all the way back to where you departed from in Clane. Mm -hmm. But you like you can't dock anywhere or do anything. There's no islands. There's no fighting. There's it's just this incredibly huge, elaborate, open world fishing extravaganza. 
my understanding is the reason every video game since like Link to the Past or not Link to the Past, wherever the Game Boy one was, every video game in the world has fishing because I I think the Japanese just love fishing. They're an island culture. They love fishing video games. Like it's just a big deal. And didn't they add like a VR fishing thing at, when they did the Brothers chapters? Wasn't that Knox thing that they added like crazy VR fishing mode? I have no idea, but like if if okay, if you'd asked me that question before I saw this incredibly elaborate open world fishing thing, I would have said no. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but now that I've seen what they've done, I'm like probably. But no, Final Fantasy 15 is good. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. And I, I don't play a ton of open world games, actually, and because I just don't have a lot of time. So when one really gets its teeth into me, I, I, I have to finish it. You know, I have to just put all my time into it. You did stumble upon kind of 15 seedy underbelly, though, because you have your, your story missions with the really elaborate dungeons that you crawl through, the like the structured content. And you have your side missions, which are like the hunts and like some of the side quests you do for the NPCs. And then you got like the bottom feeder stuff, which is like, help me, I'm behind this rock. And you're like, oh. there's 50 rocks. <laughs> yeah, I was complaining about that with you on uh, on Discord. Yeah, I, there, I have this level three challenge that is just going to sit in my inventory forever because I got somebody, I was getting attacked by Imperials and somebody said, help. And I was like, okay. And then I tried to find them for like an hour. <laughs> It felt like, I mean, it felt like forever because I kept getting attacked by Imperial dropships or little saber cats or whatever they're called and just cleared out this huge perimeter and could not find where this dude was hiding. So I was like, oh, well, sorry, you're on your own, buddy. Now, until the very end of the game, I'm going to have like a level three 500 gil challenge that I just I can't complete because I'm not going to find this guy. I have the hardcover Final Fantasy 15 Bible and it has... All the missions and everything in it. Uh, this is an incredibly in-depth reference. Outdated now, of course. The game has been patched a little bit. Yeah. But most of the information is still pretty good. There are more of those help me missions than you can possibly imagine. I glanced at like an FAQ or something. And not only are there a bajillion of these help me missions, but apparently some of them have like prerequisites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you have to find one dude to find another dude. So it's possible if I just don't do this level three, help me in the desert thing, I'm just going to miss like 30 missions. I don't, I don't oh, even I, know. I, I, you're I not missing anything. You will miss absolutely nothing. Oh, well, thank God. It's like you've got a nice pot of soup bubbling away on the stove, right? You've tasted it and it's coming along. Somebody just comes in your kitchen and grabs a bunch of spices and throws it in without you knowing it. That's what those missions are in open world <laughs> games. Some asshole comes in the, the, the room and just throw, oh, we need we need something behind this rock. Have a guy scream, help me. And it's then the, put 50 more of that guy. It's the seed problem. Like, I, And I don't mind there's 9,000 of these things in the world if on an average playthrough, I'm going to find maybe 50 or 100 of them. But there's always going to be that one asshole who's going to be like, I'm going to 100% Breath of the Wild. And, and then they go and find all 9,000 of them. And I think my favorite part about that, my absolute favorite part, is that, I mean, spoiler if somebody hasn't found this yet or looked at it on the internet, but uh, <laughs> tiny, tiny spoiler for Breath of the Wild. If you find all whatever 900 of, or whatever Karok seeds, you get a literal golden piece of poo. Like, that's your prize. That's another thing Japan's very big on. Apparently poo oh, is little, a... Uh, little poos, yeah cultural touchstone 
in Japan. <laughs> weird place. Weird, weird place. We're recording this in early October, and I checked the calendar, and it's an even-numbered year. And that means that voting season is upon us mm-hmm. once again. Oh, yeah. Now, for me, what this means is I can't watch anything on Hulu for about four months. You live in a swing state. Sucks to <laughs> be you. I'm so sorry. Although Georgia's getting more and more purple with each election, isn't you it? You know, they say that. And then Trump won by like 30 points. So mm. Georgia definitely has its blue. Um, our, our current governor race is in the polls. And I don't trust polls anymore. But in the polls, it's apparently very tight. Because we have a very unpopular Republican running and a fairly popular, potentially historic, um, it'd be the first black female governor of Georgia. And maybe first black female governor in the United States. I can't remember what it was going to be, but if she won, it would be a big deal. So it's definitely tighter than normally would be in Georgia. But as far as presidential stuff goes, I have not really bought into the Georgia as a swing state by any stretch yet. Pretty much the most, the strongest political thing that I like to say in a in a recorded setting where people can take my voice and then play it back later is, and I know you've got my back on this, but mm-hmm. I'm a very strong advocate for everybody voting. Yes, absolutely. Every election, the only, everybody right now is going, melting down on Twitter about you need to vote my way, you need to vote. This is why you need to vote for this. This is why you need to avoid voting for this. And everybody, all I like to tweet out is just, you know what? Get registered and then go vote. And that's it. That's all the fingers I want to put in your pot. Right. We're going to discuss a little bit about uh, voting. It's going to get really dry and boring and obnoxious. And then we'll go back and talk about cartoons later. Don't worry. Brick Road's going to edit in some really funny music behind all of this. So it's all going to go really <laughs> swimmingly. I have an excellent 8-bit rendition of Eye of the Tiger <laughs> that I've been listening to lately. That sounds about right. Okay. You, you and I share a controversial opinion about voting. I'm surprised how controversial it is, and I wonder if it's actually controversial or if you just have fans who interact with us on the Discord who are very strong-willed against us, because I don't think it's that controversial. I think you might, yeah, I think it's more radical than you're giving it credit for, because you have to remember that the United States, we have this culture of this very strong rebellion culture. We don't like authority. Right. We don't want to have a national idea system. We don't like the idea of having national laws telling us what we can and can't do in our own states. It it really is a cultural thing of, of rebellion. And that, I think that's why there's so much pushback. I think that's why I say it's a controversial subject. I think most people would be against this. Okay. Well, let's put it out there and see what kind of blowback we get. <laughs> okay, let's do it. McLean and I, and I, McLean is probably the only person, like, intelligent adult that I've spoken to on this topic that does agree with me. Uh <laughs> And now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe it's not the best podcast material to have two guys who agree with each other just patting themselves on the back over it. Well, I think I think that it's I think that's important that we're acknowledging that it's controversial, and we can talk about some of the counter arguments that we've gotten to it. So let's just put it out there. We've been teasing it for too long. <laughs> McLean and I think that in the U.S. at the federal and state levels, we should have mandatory voting for all citizens. 
it should be compulsory. Yes. I think that if you are a citizen, you should vote. I think that you have the the ability to vote. I don't like either of these people, but you at least have to show up and put your name down. You have to hold up your hand and say, I'm paying attention at the very least. We're not saying you have to vote for a particular candidate. Obviously, if you don't want to vote, you should absolutely be able to abstain or to spoil your ballot or whatever. But this is something that he and I both have agreed on and argued with people about in the past. I think that the big sticking point that people tend to argue is like they keep saying you can't force people to vote if they don't like either of the candidates. And to which we always say, write somebody in. Like if you want a third party, if you want if you want independence, this is a good way to get it. If you if you compel people to vote then you can have more spoilers in there. I think the main thing is you have to compel people to vote. And I think the other issue is people always want to argue logistics. And we both acknowledge that this is, in a way, idealistic. And there's a lot of groundwork that has to be done beforehand. You have to, to have compulsory voting. You also have compulsory registration. But then you also have to really change the way voting takes place. Yes, and that's a very very important point, because this is a sticking point people that I've debated this topic with, is, well, the system is so broken now, we have one party who's trying to, like, spoil another party's votes by getting as few people. To get where McLean and I want to be, you have to fix those problems first. Step one, make it super easy to get every citizen registered, make sure everybody knows what they need to do in order to get registered to vote, solve these stupid problems where, where polls are being closed and like voter ID laws or keeping people away from the polls, like solve those problems first. And then as step two. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out that this is not maybe necessarily as nonpartisan as we make it, as we would like it to sound because there very much is, shall we say one side that is, going out of their way to restrict voting. They are trying to make it more difficult to vote. They're calling on more and more voter ID laws. They keep making um, they want to close polls. They want to shut down um, absentee ballots. They, they, they want it to be you go and vote in person on Tuesday, which is not practical for a large majority of the, of the population. And a lot of those people tend to vote the opposite way. So when we say we want these people, like it should be mandatory that they vote, we're not looking to punish them for it not being practical to vote now. We want to get those problems fixed first. It's not feasible to say you have to do this thing if it's not practical to do this thing. And I think that that's part of why I say it should be compulsory to vote. I think that's one of those. Sometimes I think you you ask for an extreme so you can maybe negotiate backwards a little bit. And while I think that it would be awesome if it was compulsory to vote, if literally every legal citizen in the country voted and we had 9,900% voter turnout, that would be amazing. I would settle for let's make voting a national holiday and we, the polls be open for a week and let's not close polls in minority neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I like the, the idea, like ask for the extremes so you can get. 70%. That's a that's a valid and very common tactic. I do that when Peanut asks me what I want for dinner. I said, well, I want a four-course steak dinner. She's like, mm, how about a hamburger? I'm like, I'm cool with that. <laughs> you know what? It's the same animal. I got what I wanted. <laughs> I'm in that ballpark. I think 
two things we're going to have to address in this podcast. Like, first, we're going to have to talk about, like, what problems we think this would solve. That that's going to be something that people would want to know. And second, we're going to have to address, like, what should happen if we have compulsory voting and somebody doesn't vote? Like, what if you just don't? Are you breaking the law? Does a black van show up? I think those two things are, we're probably going to have to head off at the pass. So, and I know we've talked about this before, and and our, I guess, knee-jerk reaction was, well, if you don't vote, you pay a fine. It'll be a tiny fine, but you pay a fine. And people are like, well, that's unfair because the people who are most likely to not vote are the same people who are most likely to not vote now, which would be your poor, indigent people. You know, the people who can't afford to pay a fine either. So it's a valid argument, but you know what? I'm going to backpedal that. That's not a valid argument. (laughs) (laughs) I keep like, I don't have to justify myself. The only other guy in the call agrees with me. I could just go hog wild. No, let me. Okay. So the argument is if we have compulsory voting, the people who are most unable to pay, say a $50 fine are the people who are least likely to vote that's both of those things are true that correlation exists but we don't need compulsory voting to make wealthy people vote they're already voting right the argument is that's why you have the penalty <laughs> is to get the the lapsed voters to vote the $50 fine isn't there to ruin somebody who doesn't vote. It's to be just enough of a pain in the butt to be like, you know what? I'm going to take the two hours after work on Tuesday and go down to the poll. I'm tired. My kids are at home and like, I got dishes and like, but I'm going to, I'd rather go take the two hours than pay the $50 fine. See, but I would take it one step further and say part of the idealism of this would be, it wouldn't be, taking the two hours because you will have people who work two jobs and can't afford to have the sitter, can't afford to leave their kid in daycare, can't afford to miss an hour of work. And that's where the idealistic part of it comes, where it is a national paid holiday or it is you can vote by mail, you can vote online, you can go to your local library and get onto their internet and put in your ID and vote somehow. There is a certain amount of logistics to figure out that I don't know because I'm not an expert, but I think that that's part of it. It shouldn't be you have to go wait in line for four or six hours or even two hours or even an hour. Uh, It it should be something where you can just say, okay, I'm going to take 15 minutes and fill out my form and put it in the mail. You know, we should just send everybody in the country a ballot. Why can't we do that? Yeah, if you have a permanent address, just... You get a ballot in the mail. I'm getting my ballot in the mail in a couple weeks, most likely. I usually prefer to vote in person just because I get a kick out of going and doing it. But I also lived in an area where my polling place never took more than 15 minutes, for better or worse. Yeah, my, mine too. I'm the same way. I have not ever had to wait. I think the longest we ever had to wait. And this is a great story that's unrelated, but I'll tell it sometime on the show. <laughs> <laughs> the longest I ever had to wait, I think, was about an hour in order to vote. Yeah, I think most of the time I'm in and out in like 15 minutes. Sometime I literally have no wait. Like it takes as long as it takes me to fill out my name and go and vote. You know, on like off-year elections. It's an odd year and I'm going to go vote on city council. And that's another thing. Oh my God, can we not just put all the elections on the same damn day? Like I'm oh, so I sick of like, <laughs> oh, my city council was voting on the odd year in May. And I'm like, what the hell? Are you May, just May's not even a real month. Come on. And you do run into certain problems, too. Like, okay, let's say we get compulsory voting. Are primaries compulsory now? 
That's a very interesting question, but that's I don't think that's something we can solve at the federal level. That's going to definitely be a state-by-state state thing. I was going to say I think absolutely not, because primaries are, let's be honest, kind of a dog and pony show. Parties can pick their candidate. It doesn't matter. And so, screw it. Who cares? Well, what I meant more was along the lines of, like, in Florida, which has closed primaries, it doesn't make sense to make them compulsory. Like, I don't even know how that law would work. I'm not allowed to vote in the primaries in Florida. Like, how would you pass a law to make me go do it? That doesn't make any sense legally. And I lived in Florida for a couple of years. So are you registered independent? So you legally cannot vote in either primary? Is that how it works? That's correct. Uh, Peanut is registered as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. When we got our uh, primary ballots a couple weeks ago, she had like this thick envelope (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of all of the Democratic primaries. And I had like two pages of just nonpartisan judges. And I'm like, I don't care about any of these races. So I remember when I moved to Florida, I was told register Republican. I was like, I'm not a Republican. And they're like, register Republican because when it comes to governor and senator, that's the only thing you're going to be able to vote for is the primary. And I was like, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I only lived there for a couple years, so I think I can't remember. I think I was probably independent and just didn't vote in primaries too, but I honestly can't remember. I think that registering as the opposite party to try to spoil their primaries, like I get strategically why people do it, but it strikes me as being it strikes me as not being in good faith. Oh no, absolutely not. The whole point of a primary is you are a member of the club and you are voting on the person from the club who's going to represent you. Like, that is really what a primary is supposed to be. Now, I don't, strictly speaking, consider myself a Democrat, but I tend to vote in the Democratic primaries because they tend to be the people I'm most likely to care about at this point in time. So Georgia has open primaries, correct? Correct. You could vote in either or both of them. No, you can vote in either. Okay. Because they're held on the same day, and you ask for which ballot you want. Okay. You can only vote in one or the other. You know, if I change my mind, if I decide I want to vote for a Republican one year, I can go and I can vote in the Republican primary. If there's a Republican I just really love for some reason, I can go vote in that primary. But I think, unfortunately, the way it works in Georgia is it's the entire thing. You know, if I say I want to go vote in the Democratic primary, I'm voting for the Democrats from president, Senate, Congress, all the way down. That adds a, like a whole other dimension of strategy because now year on a year by year basis you're like which primary do I vote in to get the most bang for my buck? I mean, hmm. in theory, but most people vote. I mean, especially in Georgia because Georgia is purple, but it's a very red purple. But there's definitely a little bit of primary stuff at play. Like you definitely want to vote for somebody you believe in in Georgia. Now, granted, usually the like the president's usually pretty settled by the time Georgia rolls around. We're not one of those states that's like fighting for relevance in the primaries, which is, okay, that's stupid while we're talking about elections. <laughs> All the primaries should take place on the same freaking day. The primary dog race or whatever, it's, it's idiotic. Why in the world is Iowa so important? I think I know the answer to that question. Because corn? Because Iowa has nothing going on at all. The state is, there's nothing there. It's a cornfield from border to border. And they're like, we've got to do something to make people know that Iowa is here. What is the thing we can do 
and then somebody had a brilliant idea. We're going to have our primaries before anyone else. <laughs> it's part of their state legislature. Like, it's actually, by law, they have to have their primary, like, two weeks before anybody else does. Oh, it's so stupid. Even on a non-important, like, this is not a presidential primary year. But I've been watching, because this is a big year where people are thinking, so it's an off-year election. It's a two-year off-year election, which historically tends to be a reversal. It tends to be, you know, this year the Republicans took a lot of power, so people are looking at what the Democrats are going to do. You know, it's the same thing that happened when Bush, when W was in power. There was a big swing, and then when Obama took power, it swung the other way. You had the big Tea Party push. So this is the year that everyone's expecting the big Democrat push. So everyone's looking at all these Democrat primaries to see what's going to happen. A lot of Democrats have been kicked out in the primaries. You got some, like, young blood coming up, and it's very exciting but they've been going on all freaking year. It is so annoying. Like just, just have a day when you say this is when your primaries are. Good Lord. It's very frustrating. I can get envious of other countries' election systems sometimes. Like Canada, their, their entire election cycle kind of fits inside of 12 weeks. Well, aren't they publicly funded? Isn't that the yes. thing? They're, that's a, that's the big difference is my understanding between the two countries. Because if we were publicly funded election cycles and things in the U.S., yeah, we get it all inside of 12 weeks. People would be cutting it down to six. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like I think it was in the U.K. that they had a bunch of TV buys that they hadn't had before. Because the, the election got really nasty, so they had some TV buys. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this is a nasty election for you guys? <laughs> I haven't seen any really nasty political ads. Uh, I, I do my best to avoid political ads if I can. But I do recall, it's many years ago now, our good friend McDole lived in Florida at the time. He lived in Orlando. And for elections, he would drive out to the house and we'd sit down with our ballots and we'd go over all the stuff. He's very politically minded. He's very smart. Yeah. That year, I had been mailed a DVD. This was for Barack Obama's re-election. And the DVD was called the sins of my real father and it was a propaganda dvd put out by somebody to just kind of smear barack obama before his re-election campaign and it was the most hysterical thing i've ever seen it's hour and a half long this 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 documentary uh, scare quotes documentary right and with no exaggeration the entire argument boils down to putting a picture of this like Radical communists, anarchists from the 50s and 60s, black man on one side of the screen, and putting a picture of Barack Obama on the other side of the screen and going, look how similar they are. <laughs> wow. That's the entire foundation of the argument. First of all, they're both black. I mean, there you go. And that's it. Roll credits. That was pretty much, it was 90 minutes of this, just deep diving into that one point. It was astounding. Wow, that's like the most naked racism, not even trying. It's just like, yep, yep. It was really bad. Of course, now I don't have cable anymore. I don't watch traditional TV anymore. I don't have the same exposure to political ads, except on Hulu. Oh. Which is why I'm not watching any Hulu at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, Hulu would be a lot more bearable if they would not play any local ads. Yeah, the big thing we have, like I said, we have a we have a very big governor race thing going on right now, and sort of one of the big mud raking they've got going on right now is the Democrat had um, had or still has I'm not sure which um, some debt, like 
most people in America. And that's the big hit against her right now is she had debt. <laughs> and it, and it, like people are like, oh, oh no, she's not some privileged, rich, white dude. She's a normal person who has debt. What? <laughs> like, so are like 90% of the people voting. And there are actually people out there who I can guarantee you have like a mortgage and a car note and a bunch of money on their credit card. who are going to be like, yeah, I'm not voting for her. She's got, she's got debt. I'm, there may be more nuance to it than that, but I've heard like the slams against her and I'm just like, what? I have no idea who you're talking about. I have not been, believe it or not, I'm not following the Georgia gubernatorial race, but my gut tells me there isn't more than that. Because if there was, they would be saying that. If she has debt is what they're saying, then that's probably all there is. I mean, my suspicion is they say she has debt and people see black women with debt. And the implication is the old 1980s sort of welfare queen, horrible racist stereotypes. I think that's what they're going for. Again, I don't, I usually tune these out. I haven't paid a lot of attention to the nonsense ads, the funded by such and such, you know, pack uh, ads, but that's the impression I got was like, it was just really, really vaguely dog whistle racism. Somewhere it's still 1980 in somebody's heart. Oh, and I mean, it's really, it's 1949 to these people, but. How old is this, this woman running thinking? That's a good 50s? question. So, um, she's, I think she's relatively, I think she's relatively young. Like what, what generation would she fall into? Baby boomers or is I she think a she's, Gen I think she'd be Gen X. She's 44 okay. years old. So she's kind of okay, in that Gen X relatively young. And Gen X is kind of like in between the two big, like they're, they're, <laughs> the big culture war brewing between two generations is between the baby boomers and the millennials. And you got Gen Xers kind of in the middle. Yeah. Your Gen Xers were like teenagers in the nineties in the eighties and nineties are really your Gen Xers. Like, my mom and I, my mom is, like, the oldest possible Gen X, mm-hmm. and I am, like, the youngest possible Gen X. That's kind of how it shakes out. Yeah, I, I'm right on the cusp between Gen X and Millennial. I'm a 1980s baby, so. But what, what's interesting is that, because Baby Boomers and Millennials have very, very different experiences with debt as a concept. Oh, yeah, for sure. For, ba- for most, and I'm generalizing, I know all generalizations are wrong, including this one, but I am generalizing, but baby boomers have this mindset of, like, their parents worked for everything, and then they inherited what their parents worked, and debt is kind of seen as a negative. If you don't own something outright, you don't really own it. Whereas millennials, debt is just a fact of life. Most millennials entering the workforce are doing so with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. People not even paying off their student loans until they turn 40. It used to be student loans was what you got if you went to, like, med school. Now it's what you get if you want to have a job anywhere. Right. So I can see what this ad is doing. It's On one hand, it's telling these baby boomers, hey, this woman has debt, and debt is bad, so vote against her. But in tying it back around to compulsory voting, a lot of millennials don't vote. Oh, yeah. They're not going to see that message and go like, I don't care that she has debt. That's not a big deal because they're already kind of not voting. So that's why that ad is skewing in one direction and not the other. It's also an ad that shows primarily on traditional media, which also skews older. You know, you're not seeing that ad if you're watching Netflix. Well, you're not seeing any ads if you're watching Netflix, I should hope. Well, apparently Netflix uh, is testing 
promotions for other Netflix shows. And some people are saying, that's not that big a deal, whatever, I don't care. And other people are saying, that's an ad. By God, I got Netflix because I don't want ads. I'm like, hey, if it's not for like Diet Coke and the local election, I don't care. I honestly don't mind if Netflix gives a, shows me something for some other show once in a blue moon. I don't mind when Netflix does it. HBO does it too. Uh, and usually it's like a, like a pre-roll before the episode. Or with Netflix, it's when you go into the browser. It'll start just auto-playing the trailer for whatever new thing they want. I've legit discovered stuff that way, so I don't care. You know, it's not that annoying to me that, you know, I can occasionally see as something that's not what I was originally going for. I think that's how I discovered a couple of shows. Like, I think that's how I found uh, Everything Sucks and Big Mouth because they were just, these are trending, check them out. And I was like, okay. Do, did you watch any of the uh, the Disney Channel back in like the 90s on cable? I I don't know if I was watching at the same time as you. My friend had Disney. I don't okay. know. I can't remember if we did or not. I watched some Disney. Yeah. The Disney Channel didn't do traditional advertising. Like they they did mostly children's programming, but they wouldn't advertise like cereal and toys and things. Right. What well, was a paid station back in the day? Yeah, it was a premium channel. But they still had full ad breaks, three ad breaks per show, all for Disney Channel programming. And it was the most obnoxious commercials you could possibly imagine. Because they could only really, at any point, be advertising like eight shows. Right. And so you, you in one two-hour block of programming, you'd see the same commercial for the same episode of the same show 12 times. It's like, man, I could really go for a Lucky Charms commercial right now. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Stephen King. Like, I like a bunch of stuff he does, and then there's a bunch of stuff I'm just like, you're just cashing a check. <laughs> I think there was one of, the, one of the early Good Family Guy episodes where I don't know what the setup was, but they did a cutaway to Stephen King, and he's in, his, he's in an office talking to, I guess, his agent. And he's like, hey, we need another idea from you. And Stephen King's like, okay, there's a... Uh... And he just grabs a lamp off of the desk. He goes, there's a lamp monster. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> And the guy's like, you're not even trying anymore. And Stephen King's like, no. And he's like, okay, have it to me by the end of the month. All right, 60,000. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> My favorite book of all time is actually a Stephen King book, though. Ooh, which one? It is his book on writing. Oh, we've talked it's, about this. Yeah. yeah it's, it's it's nonfiction. It's not his scary stories. But it, I think the idea is his agency is like, hey, you should write a book about how to be a successful writer. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's something that he was like trying to do for years and you couldn't get it all together. And eventually he's like, I don't have any idea how to be a successful writer. I'm just going to say that in the book and then kind of write my autobiography. Right. So that's what he does. And it's a really interesting book. And it talks about his whole process of writing all the stories that made him famous. It goes into a lot of detail about uh, when he got hit by that van and he almost died and how that changed his life. He goes into his addictions and you, you learn a lot of these stories came from over the years and very little in there about how to be a good writer though. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> I need to, I need to, to read or listen to that one at some point because I, so I've been going back through the, um, the dark tower, which is his opus and uh, it's, it's, it's a seven book series and I'm actually on, I'm, I've just finished book six and Part of my love-hate relationship with Stephen King is one of the things he does, and minor spoilers for a 20-year-old book, but uh, he, Stephen King, is a character in The Dark Tower. Oh, God, come on. And, yeah, exactly. That is my initial reaction, like, come on, really? You, you, 
you and it's not even like he couldn't even just have like there is a writer who is a very obvious self-insert character because Stephen King has had a buttload of writer characters who are very obvious self-insert characters. Stephen King is literally in the story, which I hate. I hate it so much. But the use of this character Stephen King in the story is so completely obviously Stephen King working through his own issues because the character, it's like Stephen King from the 1970s. And he's writing it and he's talking about the Stephen King guy opening another beer and just continuously drinking and smoking too much and just like dealing with a bunch of issues and like it, it gets into the car crash to the getting hit by the van thing and like on some level I understand it. I know where this is coming from, but at the same time I'm like, could you have not done this a little more artfully? Like it's it's <laughs> there's no other way it's love hate relationship. Like I love ninety percent of what he did with this series, but then I hate that he did that. Half of his characters are already Stephen King inserts. Well, that's what I'm saying. He he already had that available. He had <laughs> characters just sitting there ready to be used, but he had to know. He had to literally have because in Stephen King's head, and he says this like in so few words to him, he did not write the Dark Tower. The Dark Tower came through him, and so he wrote as if that was literally true, where the characters literally visit him. And I don't know if that's just him because being a little insane or what, or just lazy. Well, I don't know. Like I said earlier, sometimes you have to take the eccentric behavior if you <laughs> want the eccentric person to do good things. I don't think Stephen King is a great writer. I've read most of it. I couldn't finish it. I read The Green Mile. I've read a lot of his uh, like short story compilations, which I think are his best he, work as far I think as he works writer. best in a short form, which is funny since I'm list I'm reading his uh his opus. His, his opus, yes. Yeah. But I think Stephen King I mean he's not a bad writer. You can do worse than to pick up a Stephen King novel and read it, but he I think he's an excellent storyteller. I've always gotten more from his film adaptations over the years than I have from his written work. I'm gonna have to hard disagree on that. I think most Stephen King films have been hot garbage. Oh yeah? I mean, I say that having not seen the recent It, which is supposed to actually be fantastic. Historically, like Pet Cemetery, Maximum Overdrive, Deedful Things was a film that wasn't very good. I just have not been down with most of his film adaptations. So let's elephant in the room, because there's one film adaptation that Stephen King was famously not happy with, and that was The Shining. Right, because it, it deviated so much. Uh, is that was, an exception to your rule or not? I So in general, I am a very big fan of people doing something different with an adaptation. Like one of the things I love that Handmaid's Tale Season 2 is expanding on the ending of the book. I like that Kubrick Shining was a different interpretation. I like that. I like it when people take something and make something new out of it. That being said, Kubrick's Shining is not faithful to the book at all. And it omits some of the stuff that was scariest on the page maybe wouldn't have translated well to the film, but it wasn't faithful. There was literally something. Have you ever read The Shining? I have not, actually. Okay. I'm not going to say exactly what it was because I think it's worth reading or doing an audiobook. But there was literally something I read in The Shining where the character's doing this, that, and the other, and... The character's kind of going through project, and they're doing something over and over again. And then I noticed something was amiss. 
as I was reading, I was like, wait a second, something changed in this routine for the last couple of pages. And then shortly thereafter, the character noticed something changed. And I literally flipped back a couple of pages, read it, realized something was different, flipped back, and then was going through, he was did such a good job of going through the same thought process I was with the character as they realized kind of the, you know, that thing in the corner of your eye, like something is amiss. And it was so well done in text that it scared the hell out of me when I was reading it. <laughs> like literally I had to like go turn on another light. It freaked me out so much. And granted, full disclosure, I was 12. But <laughs> I wasn't reading uh, Stephen King when I was 12. I was I was reading like Brian Jacques and C.S. Lewis. So. Well, Stephen King is what my father had on the shelf. And so that's what I read. I was reading Pet Cemetery and Stephen and it and uh, all these books, probably way too young. But that particular scene didn't make it into the Kubrick movie. Now, it did make it into, they did do a TV movie of, um, of The Shining that was not. Which ends a lot more faithfully. It's a lot more faithful to the story. I've seen this miniseries that you're talking okay. about. Okay, so you have seen the miniseries. So the yeah, scene yeah. I'm talking about in particular has to do with the topiary bushes, which I don't think it was effective on that miniseries, but in the page, it was massively effective. Are you going to make the case? I don't want to pin you down to this, but we do have to clarify before we move on. If you're not a fan of Stephen King movie adaptations, okay, where are you on the Shawshank Redemption? So I've never read the short story um, I don't even know if it's called the Shawshank Redemption. I've never read the Shawshank Redemption, so I can't tell you how it works as a as an adaptation. But that is a fantastic movie, and my understanding is it's pretty faithful to the book, or to the I'm sorry, to the short story, and it kind of proves that the short stories are sometimes the places where Stephen King does the best. And I'll throw another one at you that's in a very similar vein is Stand By Me. Yes. Which is based on a novella called The Body. And it is Which I have read. I have read The Body. And I think that I actually think that movie is better than the novella. By far. I do too. Yeah, that's That is another one with a sil- with an insert writer character, which none of that appears in the short story. The, I mean in the movie rather. The movie just focuses on being a kid, whereas the novella kind of goes back and forth where he talks about his adult life being a writer and it doesn't work for me like at all. So I think that Stephen King's more grounded stuff adapts to the screen really well. I think The Green Mile, which I actually haven't seen, but I've heard good things about. The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, The Body. I'm drawing a blank on what other ones he's done. But was those... Road to Perdition, was that King? No. No. I, I don't believe, I think that was an older story. I don't, well, let me double check, but I'm pretty sure. I, God, I have not thought about that movie in a long time. Oh, but what I was going to say is, I don't think his horror translates well to the screen. I don't think it ever has. I think, like, I saw the Gunslinger movie, or the Dark Tower movie, which was loosely based on the first book, The Gunslinger, and I thought that they did a really terrible job with it. I think if they want to do the Dark Tower, and I pray they do this, because there's been rumors they're going to do it for years. Have you seen the Castlevania Netflix show? Oh, yeah. I think that the Dark Tower would work incredibly well in that format. And I'm saying that partially because they did have done graphic novel adaptations and that style would work so well and would be so cool. I just don't know if they're going to do it. (laughs) I am such a fan of stupid, corny, 
1970s and 80s era horror. Mm-hmm. I love it. So a lot of those, the, the Stephen King adaptations that you said, nah, like Pet Cemetery, oh, loved it as a kid. I love Pet Cemetery. Uh, the original It miniseries. Now, the It miniseries is pretty good. From what I remember, the It miniseries is pretty good and pretty faithful. Like, they, they took their time with it, and they do the kids and the adults bouncing back and forth pretty well, from what I remember. And Ten Curry, come on. <laughs> uh Recently, I think in just the past year, actually, they did an adaptation of one of my favorite Stephen King short stories on Netflix, Gerald's Game. They did that? Did you, so you've read Gerald's Game. I started Gerald's Game. I did not get very far in Gerald's Game. It's actually not a very good book at all. Der- Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne and Rose Matter. He went through a period where he was doing these like grounded stories that weren't very well received. So I'm kind of shocked that they did a Netflix... Was it a movie? Yeah, it's a full feature film, Gerald's Game. So I'm going to wow. summarize the plot for people who haven't heard of it. Here's the plot to Gerald's Game. This is a, it was a short story. It was in one of his compilations. Oh, oh no, it wasn't. Gerald's Game was a novel. It was a novel. Oh yeah, it was way longer than it needed to be. That's why I never finished it. The plot summary is <laughs> that rich white couple goes to their save our marriage country retreat. And he trying to inject a little pizzazz into their love life. He's getting a little kinky. He chains her to a bed. And then he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> and she starts hallucinating, like, all the abusive men in her life. Because she's starving to death and she's dying of thirst and she can't move off this bed. I thought the film was wonderful. As long as you approach it with, this is completely corny campy nonsense you're you cannot enjoy it the same way you can enjoy say the green mile it's a totally different animal i remember reading gerald's game or i started reading gerald's game and i did not get super far into it because it's such a in your head kind of thing and i think that maybe i could read it if it was shorter i'd probably read it <laughs> like that's the thing like it really should have been a freaking novella but it was a 332-page book I'm looking at I don't at remember right it now. being it that long. It is a full-length novel. And, yeah, they, they go to a cabin, and they're supposed to be having some kinky sex. And apparently in the book, because I remembered this and I was double-checking. I don't, they may have changed it for the movie. But in the book, apparently, he handcuffs her. They start messing around. But then she, he does something she doesn't like. And he she, like, says no. And she keeps saying Hey, you know, let's keep doing this. And she finally kicks him and he falls off the bed and breaks his neck or something. Oh no, he does still have a heart attack, but she kicks him apparently. Oh yeah, no, that, that still happens in the film. Oh, is that how it happens? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's one of the the little plot threads she's wrestling. Did, Did she kill him? Would he have died if not for her? This and that. And apparently she's visited by some men and like, it's sort of apparently supposed to be kind of vague whether or not somebody actually came into the room or not. I don't know. Do, do we want to spoil Gerald's game? Do we care about spoiling this film? I don't is care. This, I don't is care. This, at is all. this worthwhile? If you're one of the four people alive that cares about having Gerald's yeah. game on Netflix, pause the spoiler. podcast, go watch Gerald's game on Netflix, and come back. I guess. <laughs> I must have read this book in high school, and 
I, I really thought it was part of one of his compilations because now I'm thinking maybe they took the ending from the book and changed it for the film. Because you're right, in the book, she she hallucinates. She's like she sees her dad and uh, her husband when he was younger, when they first, when they were still in love. And she works through psychologically the men who have mistreated her in her life and her codependence on them. Because if she's going to get out of this situation and save herself, like she has to do it herself. She can't rely on anybody. But at some point in the story, she's visited by a man and she's not sure if he's really there or not. Like the devil come take her soul kind of situation. Right. And I can't remember now how the book ends, but in the movie you find out that no, that was a real guy that she was treating as a like a hallucination and part of the ending of the film like she goes to testify against him at his trial no that happens in the book i'm reading the summary Does right it? now okay. yeah there's a months later she's recuperating and she finds out that this guy who went after like apparently he was known as the space cowboy yeah in the story she doesn't know if he's there or not right she thinks she... she's just hallucinating again yeah, she's like, you're not really here. You're just a manifestation of these other abusive men. And if I can conquer you, that I can get out of the situation and survive. Come to find out, no, he was actually there and could have actually murdered her. Yeah. I think I gave up on the book Gerald's Game about the time that I got to the point that I'm reading in the second paragraph, which is when a stray dog comes in and starts eating Gerald's body. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's when I gave up on the book. I was like, nope. That's so fun. But that's the kind. It's exactly the kind of scene I'm talking about when you're watching this movie and the dog is like eating. Like, yep, that's that's what needed to happen in this scene. That's exactly <laughs> what needed to happen next. It's the exact same kind of neuron firing in my brain, like in Pet Cemetery, when you've got the little four year old kid. He's a zombie now, and. He gets shot up with, like, the anti-zombie drug at the end of the movie. He gets this real sad look on his face, and he goes, it's not fair. I don't I don't remember an anti-zombie drug. Is that a thing that happens in the movie? In the movie? I've never... I don't... <laughs> it's been so many years since I've seen this movie, but he's like a doctor, and he concocts some kind of thing to kill zombies, and he tries it out on the cat, and it works on the cat, and he tries it out on the kid... And the last you see of the kid is he gets this sad look on his face and he just, it's not fair. And it's this perfect blending of camp and horror that really pops. Did you ever see Pet Cemetery 2? We rented it and we started watching it, but I was very young and my mom made us take it off and we didn't get to finish it. You did reach a point, though, around 2000, early aughts or so, where... The newest generation of those style of horror movies were being deliberately campy for the purpose of being humorous. Well, you had the whole Scream series, which was had its tongue firmly planted in its cheek. Scream was kind of the page turning. That was, okay, This is we're going to close the chapter on the Freddy Kruegers and whatnot and open up this new chapter of horror movie where we can laugh at ourselves and just at the spectacle of it. And there is a one movie that I cannot recommend unless you are as blatant and as shameless of a campy horror fan as I am. The movie is called Jason X. It's about Jason from the Friday the 13th movies going to outer space in the future. So, I have not actually watched this movie, but I feel like I have because I've listened to at least two bad movie podcasts break it down. <laughs> 
there's a scene in this movie that I feel perfectly encapsulates the kind of camp I'm talking about. Because Jason is just hardwired to kill camp counselors. So (laughs) on the spaceship where he is in the future, in order to distract Jason from killing the real people, like they turn on this holographic scene of a camp... Or two just scantily clad, like, I'm going to take my top off and go jump in the lake now, like camp counselors are. And they cut away from Jason, and it's the guy, the people trying to figure out like how they're going to survive. They cut back to Jason. He's holding one of the camp counselors wrapped up in her sleeping bag and beating the other one with her. And you hear her just going, ow, stop it, ow. <laughs> it's fantastic see i don't mind a little bit of camp i love campy horror um it's not like something i normally would seek out and watch but i'll totally watch it if it's on tv or something but like i don't actually like being scared (laughs) like i think i saw the original like leprechaun or something and that was just like, come on. We binged watched a bunch of Leprechaun movies. And same thing, same thing. This is a series where eventually it's just laughing at themselves. Yeah, like the first Leprechaun is like a decent campy horror movie. Like it's it's, it's, a, it's a monster movie. It's a it's a creature feature kind of deal. Yeah, but it has some pretty decent scares if I remember correctly. But then again, like at least two or three bad movies podcasts i listen to have done like isn't there like leprechaun in the hood or something like that where it ends, like it get, it goes places not only is there leprechaun in the hood there is an excellent scene in leprechaun in the hood where a young black gentleman is partaking of marijuana <laughs> and the leprechaun walks in and the dude's like yo homie you want to hit that and leprechaun takes a long drag and he says a friend with weed is a friend indeed, but a friend with gold is the best, I'm told. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, does, does, uh... does, does, he, does he kill the dude smoking weed, or does he respect Oh, I'm him? sure he does. Like, he didn't just be like, yo, thanks for the J and walk off. No, I'm sure the guy got killed. That's... Hold on. I'm looking at... The series, and apparently somehow before Leprechaun in the Hood, before going to the Hood, the Leprechaun went to space. He's been in space. Mm-hmm. That seems like you're going backwards a little bit. That you go to space and then go to the Hood. Well, I mean, Elon Musk has never been to the Hood. Okay, fair point. Very fair point. Matt Groening's new show, Disenchanted, on Netflix. That's right. I actually finished watching it in preparation for the day. So before we get into a little bit of of Disenchanted, because I'm sure you have thoughts on it, Mm -hmm. full disclosure, in my opinion, Futurama is one of the best television shows ever made. Oh, yeah. I am of the belief that this show is actual, literal genius, and the chance of us seeing its like again in my lifetime is very slim. Futurama is consistently one of my top five shows I've ever watched, and it's a hard, hard act to follow, shall we say. So when we, we start discussing thoughts on Disenchanted, like, that's kind of the lens that we need to look through, because people are going to say that, oh, it's not fair to compare 
disenchanted the Futurama. And it's true that it's not fair, but it's also completely inevitable. Like, you can't really discuss one without looking at the... I mean, I sort of derisively have called it Pastorama more than once, which I believe is a joke <laughs> in Futurama, so I can't take full credit for it. Not 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 fantasy-o-rama? No. <laughs> just called it Pastorama. Uh, yeah, it's... I'm just going to go right out and say, I think Disenchantment is a very solid B show with good upward potential. I think I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with it moving forward. And that's pretty much my two-line assessment as well, because you do see a lot of people who are... You have to remember, Futurama, top five shows of all time, but we're in the minority on that. This show was not super popular. Yeah. It was not like the cultural touchstone that The Simpsons and Family Guy well, and Fe- South Park became. Futurama was a weird slow burn. Like, I mean, it was on Fox. It had, what, a five-year run, four-and-a-half-year run, and then it got canceled. But then it became really popular on Adult Swim for a while. And then mm-hmm. to the point that it got brought back several years after it got canceled. And then had, I would say, not quite as successful, but it had a pretty successful second half to its life. The kind of numbers that Futurama would get, the people who would tune in to watch it, the kind of fan base that it mm-hmm. eventually built that became very passionate about the show. This show came out in 2000. It's kind of like a modern Netflix-style show that Matt Granning tried to push through on Fox in 2000. That's kind of how I look at it in hindsight. I think the thing that's, that you got to remember about when Futurama came out is it came out... And it started in, what, 1999? Wasn't it right at the millennium? Yeah, right right, right at the turn of the millennium. So it came out in 1999, which means it was right about, what, 10 years? Is it 10 years or 12 years that Simpsons had been on at that Mm -hmm. point? Simpsons aired in 89, so yeah, about 10 years. About 10 years. So by most people's reckoning, that's when Simpsons kind of stopped being good. Some people hung out, but most people say you get past about season 10, that's when Simpsons kind of starts to flatten out pretty hardcore. I think people went into Futurama expecting something really big, and I mean, I I always love Futurama, so it's hard for me to gauge, but the numbers weren't there. And I think think it was one of those shows that got moved around its time slot a few times, too, uh, and just wasn't appreciated by the network a lot. Right, and the salient term being the numbers weren't there. Futurama was not a show that was going to pull in number two Nielsen ratings from week to week. It's one of those critically acclaimed without the huge audience kind of shows. Right, written by Aaron Sorkin. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But what we've learned now since about 2012, 2013, when Netflix started doing their own original programming... And we've had some runaway like cable hits with shows like Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. What we've learned, or what writers and stuff have learned, is that it's okay to not be number two in the Nielsen ratings. If you have your audience and you're reaching them with a successful show, that can be enough. That's Netflix's business model, essentially. So when I'm comparing Disenchanted to Futurama, I don't not doing it in the context of the quality of the two shows. I'm doing it because it really feels like with Disenchanted, this is the kind of show Matt Groening was probably trying to make in 2000 when the cultural landscape just wasn't ready for it yet. I could see that. I could definitely see that argument because uh, he was him and to a greater extent, I think the guy's name is David X. Cohen, who is really sort of the heart and soul of Futurama. He's the guy who was like, 
MIT who brought all the smarts to the show. Made it really special, really unique. Really, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, they, it's a show where the the main character is an idiot surrounded by literal geniuses, and they're not afraid to show both sides of it at all times. Apparently, anytime you see math on the back blackboard in the background of Futurama, it's legit. Like, mm-hmm. like that's the kind of people who are writing it. There's an actual math theorem that they kind of invented for the the episode of Futurama where they switch a bunch of brains around. There's like an actual math theorem that arose from that that gets used now. That's awesome. But I disenchanted solid B. Yeah, so you go from Futurama, I mean, because that's the most direct thing, to Disenchantment, which is a lot simpler of a show. It is much more of a coming-of-age story. You've got a lot more just dumb humor, a lot of drinking, a lot of slapstick. It's not bad, and it it's going somewhere. I, without spoiling it, because it, unlike everything else we've talked about tonight, I don't actually don't want to spoil it. But it mm-hmm. it it is a show with limited continuity, kind of like Futurama has. Like the episodes are building somewhere, and the end of the season kind of ends in a kind of a cliffhanger almost, like it's going somewhere. Season two is not just going to be season one again, right? Exactly, and and I think they kind of hint that at the very beginning because. It doesn't say season one, it says chapter one when you look at the menus. Uh, so, like, they definitely, I'm curious if they have, like, a five-season plan or something. Because sometimes these shows now, they'll actually have, like, a, this is the plan. We have what we want to do, and then at the end, we'll either be done or we'll work on something new, but this is the plan. I went back and watched the, not the entire first season, but part of the first season of Futurama. Like, the first, like, five or six episodes or so. Because obviously I have the entire DVD box set. I've got the entire shelf. And what I, I... I had suspected this, but what I confirmed is like the first season of Futurama, the first maybe 10 episodes or whatever it was, solid B. Yeah. It hadn't quite gelled or solidified yet. You could tell maybe this could become something special, and eventually it did. So I feel like that's... My takeaway from the first season of Disenchanted, I think we're, if, if it gels together, it could be something really special. I think um, one of the things I've, I've learned from reading about just how animation is done, even, even now, because, I mean, they didn't put out three episodes and then see what happened. They put out a full season, and, and usually what, that's what happens. You order a season, and then you edit together, and you put it out there, and you really don't get to make adjustments until the second season. I've heard that from a lot of you know, different sort of behind the scenes. So you you see that on Futurama, you know, for an animated show to make it past the first season, it takes a lot of luck because usually there's stuff that changes. Characters change, voices change a lot of the time. Uh, So I'm going to be really curious because one of my biggest criticisms of this enchantment is I don't find the characters likable. (laughs) And that's one thing I love about Futurama. I really liked most of the characters on it. And other than the lead uh, being... The lead voice, uh, I, I don't really like him. And I love me some um, John DiMaggio. And I don't like the king. I hate that guy. I hate that voice. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it gets rough. It's a little rough, yeah. He sounds like he has to, like, eat peanut butter before doing a take every single time. <laughs> because it's always <laughs> just sort of, you know, way in the back of the throat. That's definitely the first uphill climb with Disenchanted is... I wasn't sure at first, well, I'm just not used to these characters yet. Yeah. I just don't know them very well. 
But when I went back and watched the first couple episodes of Futurama, the main, like, six or eight characters in the first two episodes are already so solidified. Yeah. And they're all super likable. You cannot help but to like all of these characters. So that's... I'm not sure if that's a function of the characters in Disenchanted being less realized or less solidified, or maybe in their five-year plan they're supposed to go somewhere or having just an ensemble cast wasn't going to be doable. Yeah, I'm curious about that, because that is one thing. Futurama had a huge cast of characters, and most of them were likable by design from the beginning. And Disenchantment, and I I have to interrupt and say I love that you keep saying Disenchanted and I keep saying Disenchantment. (laughs) I thought we were doing that on purpose. (laughs) It's it's Disenchantment. I finally had to look it up. Am I saying it wrong? Um, (laughs) We'll go with Pastorama. It's fine. Pastorama. Yeah, Pastorama, like... I don't know. I feel like the characters just haven't been as uh, there's some there's like reoccurring characters, and part of this just because it's new. But like, I keep thinking like, what is the knight with the eye patch's name? Should I know that guy's name? I don't remember his name. I don't remember anyone's name yet. Futurama was it, it, okay. It's set in this surreal, magical future, year three thousand, but it's still basically us. I think that's a major part of it. Like, they don't have to establish Fry and Leela and Bender as individual characters all at once. Because everybody, every human being that lives in American culture, and Futurama is a show about American culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a mirror, but we, we all know Fry and Bender and Leela. Like, we these are people in our lives. Uh, Pastorama is... <laughs> We, elves and demons and princesses and they don't share our culture or our values or our economic system or our religion or anything so fantasy writing is always a much tougher hill to climb i wonder what percentage of our issue with these characters stems from that i do feel like they're a little bit more two-dimensional because they like Bean is she's a princess who doesn't want to be a princess so she drinks a lot and i'm like that's fine and she's likable enough when she wants to be, but she's not, she's super flat. You know, you have Elfo, who's an elf, and he's he's naive, but he's an elf, so okay. And you have Lucy the demon, who's trying really hard to be Bender 2.0 and not quite succeeding, you know? Lucy did grow on me in the later later episodes, and I don't know if that's just the character growing on me or, her, or him getting written better by the end. But uh, Lucy, I actually started to like by the end. Um, and Bean I liked from the beginning, but I, I actually really like Bean's voice actors. I like Abby uh, Jenkins. Is that her name? I don't know anything about voice actresses. Well, she I don't. Well, she's not really a voice actress. I know her because of the show um, Broad City on Comedy Central, which is hilarious, <laughs> where she plays a very similar character, except she smokes pot all the time instead of drinking all the time. I kind of wondered why they they chose to make her like an alcoholic instead of like smoking hobbit leaf or something like some weird fantasy concoction i kind of was wondering is that would that be too far into fantasy like we need it to be alcohol so it's something that we can relate to well i think that part of it too is you have to have like i mean in the fantasy setting going to the tavern is traditional and i think that's part of it you have a lot of scenes that take place at the tavern so and like the opening scene of the show is her in a tavern like that's her introduction right that's her, her, that's her establishing scene. shot and that's many episodes start with them in the tavern or waking up from the tavern or you know stumbling out of the tavern like that's like half the episodes 
I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. They start all these fantasy stories, with, and there we were in the tavern. Right, which, I mean, is very much a and d kind of setting. Like, it is it is sort of a... And that's the thing that maybe falls a little short for me, because it feels like, in a lot of ways, it is a send-up of D&D, but instead of being a hero party, it's the NPCs. Oh, see, and me having, like, with 30 years of D&D experience, I don't get the D&D vibe from it at all. To me, it feels much more like like a fractured fairy tale. I don't mean literally D&D, but I mean, like, I don't feel like we've got the heroes. I feel like we've got the side characters. That's another thing I've wondered about. Like, is, is part of the reason that I don't have a connection to these characters the way I did to Fry and Bender and Leela? Is it because in this type of setting that I'm familiar with, this fairy tale, Tolkien-esque, kind of Harry Potter fantasy world... And we're not watching the heroes. Like, is that part of it for me? Do I need them to be heroes? Is that why they're not plugged in? It's possible, because I do feel like I like the show a lot more near the end of the season when they're just, they feel like they're just doing more stuff, you know? <laughs> and that was part of the hook of Futurama, was they every week they could get in the spaceship and go to a different planet and do something more rad. And mm-hmm. I feel like half of Disenchantment was them just bumming around the castle, you know? There's a lot of bumming around, yes. I feel like, I think it just took a long time to hit its stride. And I think it may be part of this, part of the problem with being on Netflix is, I mean, Futurama, like most shows on cable, just hits the ground running, you know? Like, you know, you go from meeting Fry to being in the future to running for your lives to getting the space, like in the space of 22 minutes, Disenchantment takes a lot longer to get to a major plot point, I feel like. I mean, I think it takes almost the whole season to get to what maybe should have been the second or third episode. I think three or four seasons down the road, my suspicion is that we'll look back and we will have seen this, like, establishing shot of the current setting. And we'll be like, okay, that first season was necessary. That's why they did it that way. It makes sense now. I think we'll be able to look back and say that. But I guess we'll see. It's possible, and I hope it gets to that point. Uh, I also am reminded of when Futurama... Would you remember when Futurama had that weird gap, so they made movies? Yeah, and then they chopped the movies up into right. episodes now. And, and that's what the pacing sometimes... The, the first half of Disenchantment feels like a Futurama movie to me. It feels like the pacing is... Yeah, you're right. Not quite right. right. I feel like they're writing, they're not used to writing for that particular length, that particular format. Because these are true 30 minute episodes, if I'm, if I remember correctly. And thereabouts. It's amazing how different 22 minutes for TV with set act breaks is from 30 minutes of TV with arbitrary breaks. Like it's a very different vibe. And it could just be that I'm just not used to it. Some, some, you know, 20 year old may be like, you're old, dude. You just don't get it. (laughs) What really didn't work for me, I I think it was a major problem with the show going through the season. And it's something I think the show addressed, but we're not going to know until season two comes out. But Futurama had, they introduced the four principal characters in the first episode. And it's like, yeah, Fry's the main character, but these other three characters, Bender and Leela and the Professor, they're going to be the other three that form the core of the show. Right. These are the main characters. In in a pastorama, they established the princess, mm-hmm. Bean, very early. It's like, Bean's the main character, and here are her two sidekicks. And the sidekicks never... I didn't like that these characters were just her, 
in some scenes, very literal, like, good conscience, bad conscience, kind of. They felt like they were only there to prop up the main character. Well, yeah, having one of them being a literal demon really points out the, you know, good angel, bad angel, <laughs> angel and devil. <laughs> I, I Sometimes you go for the obvious joke. I don't blame any of them for that. Like, I would, I would have less respect if they didn't go for that joke. Go ahead and do it. We'll all sit and let, let you have it. it it's, it's more awkward if you don't do it. And I think, like, maybe part of it, too, is maybe there is a little bit trying too hard to be clever. Like... You know, Futurama famously has a shadow in the pilot that turns out to be a major character, that turns out to be a major plot point, like, four seasons in. And I worry that maybe there's a little bit too much of that going on, because, for one thing, they, as far as I know, they never really explained what the hell Lucy's even doing there. Right? They keep... Well, we... Uh, they keep making allusions to the people who... No dot dot dot. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) But we're 10 episodes in, and we still don't really know what Lucy's do, even why Lucy's even there. And no one even questions it, which I guess is part of the joke. I, I actually really do. It amuses me every single time somebody just looks at Lucy and goes, you're a funny-looking talking cat, aren't you? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, sure, we'll go with that. That actually is a pretty good gag. So, And, and it probably sounds like we're really down on it. It is a solid beat. We're just kind of nitpicking because we are comparing it to one of our favorite shows of all time. And it's like I said, that comparison is inevitable because it's not just because, oh, it's the same team, same kind of animation style. It's because it really feels like this is what they were trying to do with Futurama. Like, we know we're not going to be number two in the Nielsen charts. We know we're going to have a small, devoted audience who will pick apart every frame. We know what we're about. Let's just go in and do our thing. When it wasn't appreciated on a wide scale 18 years ago now maybe it'll find its find its footing i definitely did enjoy it especially the way that the season ended and i just hope that they they know where they're going with it because i hope it's somewhere good because i do like a good uh good matt graining production once in a while do you remember sitting in and seeing that futurama panel at dragon con that year oh yeah it was just after the final season aired and I don't know any of the voice actors' names, except for John DiMaggio, but whoever the woman's name is who voices Amy on the show Futurama, she was sitting on the panel, and she was taking questions and things, and one of the things she said was, like, because at the time they were doing a Futurama and The Simpsons crossover. Right. And that was going to be, like, the last official Futurama thing that they were ever going to make. Right. And she said, like, but I'm not in that show, so I already, you've already seen The Last of Amy. And I remember sitting there thinking, it was so sad. I'm like, no. Yeah. I, she, I, I need that. She was legit, like, upset about it. Like, she was like, oh, I'm not yeah, in I'm that not one. even going to be in this silly. So there's a big part of me that hopes three, four years from now, when Disenchanted finds its footing and finds its audience and gets rolling, that. I will have filled that void with it. (laughs) Me too.